0: You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. Listeners, happy, happy, happy New Year. I hope our 2021 collectively is better than 2020. And I believe it will be. I really do. Anywho, the entire team that makes this show, we are all taking a break for the holidays. And I hope you are too. So on today's show, we're going to revisit a conversation from a few months ago. It is a chat with the poet Claudia Rankin. Claudia's written several books of poetry, but the one that really put her in the spotlight was a book called Citizen, an American Lyric. It came out in 2014. That book is all about the destructive nature of casual racism, and it won her a bunch of awards. Claudia Rankin returned with a new book in 2020. You probably saw it in a bunch of holiday gift guides. That book is called Just Us, an American Conversation. In that book, Claudia does a thing a lot of us probably would never, ever want to do, She strikes up conversations about race with strangers.
1: I'm really interested in what other people say to me, but I'm also really interested in why I say the things that I say. Because we are all socialized inside a system that was shaped with the tenets of white supremacy.
0: Claudia says she actually found airports to be the sweet spot for making conversation. She'll tell you all about it, Let's get to that chat. For this one, Audie Cornish is hosting it. You know her as a co-host of All Things Considered, but she's on the show this episode talking to Claudia Rankin. All right. Enjoy.
2: One of the things you do in the book is you are pursuing conversations with white men who you say in general um, you don't have a a lot of um, interactions with in a way right? Can you help me understand that? Especially to people who might Google you and say, I think she has a white husband, so what does she mean by this?
1: Well, I i have interactions with white men in terms of work, and I am married to a white man. But I don't have conversations, long conversations, exploring a subject without... Um, a destination in a sense, with white men in general. And so the the task I gave myself was to to approach white men in the way that I might have a conversation with a white woman just because I'm sitting next to her, but really to push the moment so that these white men would talk to me about this idea of white male privilege. And so that was, you know, that was... a a task. And if I could move the conversation to that subject, I did.
2: This is not an easy thing to do, it sounds like. And and in the book, sometimes I feel your reluctance, like kind of getting up the nerve to do it. How did you think about approaching it? I mean, can you remember the first time trying to do this?
1: Well, I think initially I thought I would um, just wait for somebody to give me an opening in conversation, you know, so uh, you're sitting next to a guy, you're waiting, the plane is delayed, he asks the time, he asks what did the, the, the gate agent say, and then that leads to something else and leads to something else. And in one of the situations recounted in the book, eventually he asked me what I did and I said I taught at Yale and he said, you know, his son didn't get in on early decision. And And even then, I wasn't willing to say, let's talk about white male privilege. (laughs) But then when he said his son didn't get in um, because his son's friend, who was a person of color, got in, then I thought, okay, he is in my wheelhouse (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we can start this conversation.
2: I want to ask about another one of these conversations um, that starts in an airport. One that starts, you describe as having the ease of kicking a ball around on a fall afternoon, which is a a lovely image. Um, This is on page 49, and I was wondering if you can read it to us. Mm -hmm. It begins, uh, eventually he told me.
1: Okay. Eventually he told me he had been working on diversity inside his company. We still have a long way to go, he said. Then he repeated himself, we still have a long way to go, adding, I don't see color. This is a statement for well-meaning white people whose privilege and blind desire catapult them into a time when little black children and little white children are judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. The phrase, I don't see color, pulled an emergency brake in my brain. Would he be bringing up diversity if he didn't see color? I wondered. Will you tell your wife you had a nice talk with a woman or a black woman? Help. All I could think to say was, ain't I a black woman? I asked the question slowly as if testing the air quality. Did he get the riff on Sojourner Truth? Or did he think the ungrammatical construction was a sign of blackness. Or did he think I was mocking white people's understanding of black intelligence? Aren't you a white man? I then asked. Can't you see that? Because if you can't see race, you can't see racism. I repeated that sentence, which I had read not long before in Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility. I get it, he said. His tone was solemn. What other inane things have I said? Only that, I responded.
2: You follow by saying you refused to let the reality he was insisting on be my reality. And one of the things that struck me is that you're having a meta conversation right like in your mind you're seeing this conversation <laughs> through how he would view it how you would view it society history like it's just like multi-layered thing um and that that that's actually quite common especially uh for people of color right that you're having the the double consciousness in your conversation so to speak
1: yeah i think du bois's notion of the double consciousness is a ruling um, metaphor for how black people exist in the world. And so you're always a, a little bit suspicious ab- about the source of statements coming at you. And, and it's sort of being um, um, sort of sifted through all of history and snagging on moments
2: I want to ask what that means in this moment when there are many white people trying to have the conversation as well, right? Like, this guy thought he was in dialogue with you at a certain level. That revealed not to be the case.
1: Well, I think he was in dialogue with me um, at some level. And all I was doing was saying, look, what you are thinking is not what I'm thinking. And I'm going to show you. I'm going to tell you that. (laughs) <laughs> and, and then we see where we go from there. His understanding, I mean, I, again and again, I think we have seen that with the best intentions, white people have a different understanding of reality because they have been living a different reality. They have a kind of mobility socially that Black people don't have. They have been given a hand up in society in a way that Black people have not been given. And whether or not they can see the trappings of that, you know, depend on who they are. Not all white people are one white people, but but those things still remain facts. And so the more you know, the more you understand why you are positioned in a certain way and they are positioned in another way. I mean, this man, I really liked him, and we have um, since become friends. Uh, he, he got in touch with me via email, and um, he and his wife and me and my husband had dinner, and we, we now email each other. But it had to start with a kind of clarity around... What I was hearing versus what he thought he was saying or, <laughs> or right. wanted to communicate, you know?
2: One line of the text that you read, this is a statement for well-meaning white people whose privilege and blind desire catapult them into a time. Like you're talking about this line of, of color blindness. Um, and you do that with your own fact check in real time, which gets me to the structure of justice. Describe how throughout the book you have these kinds of, um, it's almost like the entire book is its own Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. You've got a line and then you've got your own, it goes beyond footnotes. And how did you think about the structure as you were putting together the book?
1: Well, I think the book, each conversation comes with a kind of, positionality of the interlocutor and myself that is informed by what we know. And I wanted as much as I could to lay bare that and to say that some of these things that I'm saying actually have factual... evidence behind them sometimes they only have anecdotal evidence behind them sometimes it's a tweet sometimes it's a quote sometimes you know and and I thought it was important because we're in a moment where this notion of fake news and false science has been thrown out into the atmosphere as as real things as if history doesn't exist as if science doesn't exist and you know and and also i'm curious about how many white people have been able to live their entire lives and gotten so many degrees and been so educated around certain things and are such good readers and and yet managed not to know any history about the subjugation of Black people in this country.
2: Okay, time for a break. When we come back, Claudia Rankin picks her battles when it comes to talking about race. 2020 had a lot of us rethinking our lives. 2021, LifeKit wants to help you make those changes, whether they're big or small. All this January, LifeKit will give you smart tips to think through your next decision. Listen now to the LifeKit podcast from NPR. Hearing you do this reminds me of a conversation that was happening nationally this summer, um, parallel to the issue of police misconduct and uh, race in America and that reckoning, but the idea that um, I'd hear young people say, I'm not here to educate you about race, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. I, as the black or uh, Latinx or uh, Asian person in this room, I'm not here to do this work for you. I don't want to have this conversation in this way or on your terms. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because in a way, like, you are having the conversation, right? Like you, you are acting in that space.
1: Well, I, you know, the, I've heard that statement for as long as I can remember, and I don't agree with it because the assumption is that I know everything. I don't know, and I don't believe I know. And, and yet I am working with white people, I am married to a white person. I, I have friends who are white. So, you know, I am a person. I, I am a black woman who lives in the United States of America, a country where the president has said, I'm a nationalist, implying I'm a white nationalist because he is white. And, I don't like the way things are going <laughs> to say, it. Um, you know, that is the understatement of my life. And so I don't see these conversations as educating. I see these conversations as trying to have people join in the same reality so we can move forward towards a more equitable society. You know, this notion of segregation, black people didn't put it in place. White people put it in there. And, and it serves them. And I'm not interested in serving them in that way. Is it taxing? Well, it, it, sometimes maybe, but, it, you know, you always have choice. If I don't feel like talking, I'm not going to talk, even to you. <laughs> you know, as another Black woman, so it's not. It's not. I don't. I don't think sharing what I know and asking you to share what you know, so that we can build something together, even if it's just a conversation right now, is taxing. I think that's what
2: conversations are. Does that feel um, generational to you? That approach, I've been thinking a a lot about sort of. Yeah, I think that it
1: feels a little bit like it's a new activist positioning, you know. And I feel like if somebody needs to do that, they should do that. I'm not here to tell them not to do that. I think if they, if that's their mode of rest in the world or what makes them feel safe, they should do that. But I personally don't see conversing with people as a burden if I'm choosing that, you
2: know? One of my favorite anecdotes in the book is where you attend a play with a friend. And it's a play in which at one point white audience members are asked to leave their seats and go up on stage, and, and some do. But the white friend that you came with does not get up. And you describe what's going through your head in that moment, the kind of frustration and, and your perception that she didn't feel compelled or that she needed to answer the commands of this black playwright. Um, What was it like trying to take this personal interaction (laughs) and kind of look at it like a diamond, right? All the different facets of what's going on. Did you scribble some notes in the bathroom? Were you fuming in the Uber? Kind of walk me through how this happens. I'm sorry that that's such a brutal craft question, but (laughs) I'm curious.
1: (laughs) Well, the, the Fairview was a play. Jackie Jury, Lee's brilliant Fairview, and what was ironic and not in the essay actually is that um, they invited us as members of the Racial Imaginary Institute, an institute um, I helped found that had to do with investigating race culturally in American society. And the play asks, in this beautiful way, an actor comes to the audience and says, you know, what if we can imagine something differently? What if um, we could give the space to black people, the space of the, the um, audience to black people f- for a minute, you know? Like, we can uh, make something happen here that doesn't happen in the real world, and it and in order to make it happen, all you have to do if you're white is get up and go to the, the stage. And when my friend, who is also a member of the Racial Imaginary <laughs> Institute, just
2: sat there. Right. So, in short term, woke. <laughs> right? This yes, is your exactly. woke friend <laughs> that you took to this <laughs> performance. So, you're like, okay, the one thing you're probably going to do is get up and then.
1: And then she doesn't. And um, and I, I I truly sat there to the point where I no longer could hear the play, because I couldn't believe this. I, <laughs> I just thought, what are you doing?" But I couldn't say, you know, but we were in the play. The actress was talking, people were going up and and I I, I, I had such a physical reaction. That it stayed with me for for weeks, when the play ended and we everyone rose to exit, I turned to her and I said, you know, I didn't know you were black. And she, to which she answered nothing. and And then we left quickly because it was pouring rain, and we ran to the car and we drove back to Connecticut
2: and. And also, that was a little bit of a mic drop by you. I mean, yeah. <laughs> being honest here, you didn't say how'd you like the play. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, it's sad. They asked, you know, "Black people stay here." She stayed there, so I'm assuming. And um, so then I I waited and um, for us to have a conversation, and she, you know. It was interesting, and, and she when I said to her, are you willing to write down, you know, what you were thinking? Because I sent her the essay, and she said, you know, this, this is what I said, what I did, but not what I was thinking. So I said, will you write down what you were thinking? And um, And so this essay in the book usually gets a lot of attention because of her detailed attempt to bring forward her own feelings in that moment.
2: I'm, I'm going to read a, a section of that. Um, it, it begins, I didn't think I was black at the end of the day, but I was all over the place. So sick of white people, so identified with those who feel watched, the black people in the play, so in awe of the play, shaky. Claiming owning whiteness in that moment by getting up felt hard. I felt glued to my seat. I'm sure there's a lot more to say, think, analyze about all of this, but that's the phenomenological... <laughs> truth of it. And then a word I can't say because um, FCC rules. She <laughs> says and otherwise. Um, but it does get at the idea that I, I have heard this kind of like, I have heard white people express such, um, I guess, how do I say this? After this spring and this summer, When all of a sudden it seemed like white America, mainstream white America was engaging in ideas about race, specifically ideas like white privilege, which for some time had seemed kind of academic. And then there was already a kind of backlash to the idea of white fragility or anti-racism or a kind of ironic detachment of like, oh, this performative thing that doesn't mean anything. And I kind of heard that echoed in this letter. Like, I don't want to be a part of something that's performative. Yeah.
1: And I, I heard that too. So I is mean, she I, right? I mean, it's a complicated thing. It's complicated. It's, it's intellectual, and intellectually maybe she's right. But, <laughs> you know, but what does it mean for the other black people there? that she's refusing? What, is, what, what does it mean that f- such a small ask is not possible as a kind of symbol of the, the larger and more important ask? You know, so if you look at it that way, it's not really a question of right or wrong. It's a question of how much discomfort are you willing to hold? How much do you care How a person next to you feels. Do you even
2: understand what this play is investigating? Time for one more break. When we come back, Claudia Rankin talks about the myth of cancel culture and how we move forward. At Planet Money, we are also grappling with what's going on in the world. We just don't know, and, and you're still going to have to decide. So we call up economists like Emily Oster.
0: It's like we're fighting the pandemic by having a bake sale or something. Exactly. I mean, all due respect to bake sales. Exactly.
2: <laughs> Listen and subscribe to Planet Money from NPR. I can still hear the emotion in your voice. And may I ask, how, how did this relationship survive? How did it survive? Yeah, cuz there's a lot of people right now who are going to hear this and think I tried to have a similar conversation or I had a moment like that. And it just felt like it was opening up something that I could not put back.
1: Well, that's the thing. It did open something that I could not put back, but something that can be helped. And um and I appreciate this friend because, you know, we have had similar um disagreements or conversations. And I think she allows me to see a kind of complexity that opens up my thinking in some ways. And here's an example. Amy Cooper, the woman who was asked by Christian Cooper to put her dog on the leash. And yes, this then this is the story, set, the
2: New York birding story, people would call it.
1: Yeah, the birding story. And um and then claimed that she was afraid after, you know, a performance of that deserved an Oscar when she called the police saying that she was being threatened. And, you know, my my friend and I both agreed that it was um, ridiculous, but then she lost her job. And suddenly this friend called me and she said, another friend, she didn't say she did, but she said another friend thought maybe that was too much. And I said, too much, in what sense? Oh, you know, she had an altercation with a guy in the park. She shouldn't have called the police, but she called the police, but now she should lose her job. And I said, she called uh, the police, you know, within the same 24 hours that Floyd is killed by the police. So we can all see how the story could end. I mean, Amy Cooper should lose her job because if she thinks about black people in this way, then how is it that she can go back to corporate America and behave in an equitable fashion? How is that possible? How can she represent her company in a way that says, when I come to her, I will get fear and equal treatment? That's the problem. And that's where, you know, many white people won't go. Did you see that article recently that talked about the fact that um, newborns are three times more likely to die if they have a white physician?
2: No, I did not. You didn't see that? At a certain point, my husband asked me to stop reading. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> stories during my COVID pregnancy, um, because I was going to my doctor and talking about, you know, black maternal health statistics. And it was, yeah. it was, a uh, it cast a pall over my pregnancy in a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was this thing in the well, back of my mind that like, oh, my child is more, more likely to die under a certain set of circumstances known as life. Exactly. You
1: know, when people are talking about cancel culture, I think... Sure, it's going to be abused in some ways, in the same way that Me Too, sometimes it's not justified. But the real question is, how did we get to a point in society where Me Too even had to form? Like, the people who are so concerned with cancel culture, why weren't they concerned with the abuses being um used against women, used against Native Americans, used against Black people, used against immigrants, used against undocumented. Why isn't that the thing that is bothering them?
2: I think um, there's something you talk about towards the end of the book, the too-muchness of our present reality. I feel like as I'm following um, the stories about this issue in the country, we are witnessing the beginning of the backlash to what we've experienced this spring and summer of people talking about protests in cities um, as part of, from the Republican point of view, especially law and order, issues of law and order. Um, so how does one go, go forward, right? Like how do you, as you say, hold on to something as the, tur- as the, the tide is turning?
1: Well, I think you have to know that when the protests happened that the tide would turn. Of course it's going to turn. The status quo is always what people are asking for. You know, the DA office, how do you think um, um, the Central Park jogger case ended up with five kids in jail when none of them were at the site of the rape and beating because of the status quo, because somebody like Linda Fierstein was able to convince policemen, jury box, and judge and jury, and press, that innocent people were guilty because they were black and Hispanic. So this, this move towards um, controlling protests or backlash, that's the natural state of things in this country. And that is what has led us to where we are. And as long as we're afraid to push against it and afraid of the idea of backlash, we're never going to address what's there.
2: A, a friend who reads your book comments to you that there's no strategy here it seems like you were probably heading off um, this line of questioning as well (laughs) by interviewers like me. Why is there no strategy here?
1: I'm not interested in telling people what to do. I'm not offering a prescription. Just Us is a book that says, look at this. Let's see what it means to be in conversation. Let's see what it means to um, try and apprehend the same reality. You know, when you see um, a man put his knee on another man's neck until he dies and has to call out for his mother, what is behind that? What What allows us both to be able to hold that as part of America?
0: Thanks again to poet Claudia Rankin and, of course, forever thanks to my friend and colleague, Audie Cornish. Claudia Rankin's latest book is called Just Us, An American Conversation. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Andrea Gutierrez and edited by Jordana Hochman. Engineering help came from Vincent Accavino. And also special thanks to Justine Kinnan and Art Silverman from NPR's All Things Considered. All right, listeners, stay safe, take care, have a great new year. I'm Sam Sanders, and uh, we'll talk soon.